Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to Dieter Kocken. Dieter used to play in the NHL as a goalie. He currently helps out Northern Michigan with their goalie program. He owns a taxidermy shop locally and he does a lot of hunting in the area. Uh, so had a lot of common interest in the hunting side of things and it was neat to hear about his NHL experience, what it took to get there and what that was all like. So this is another fun one. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Hello, Dieter. How's it going? Good. Back at it again. We just did. 20 minutes, uh, found out my software wasn't recording your voice, so we could have heard me respond to you, but that's not going to be very engaging. Uh, here to talk to you about a few things. We, we covered NHL, hockey, history, uh, hunting, taxidermy. Uh, you said those are the big three. Uh, before we got cut off, we were talking about some of your hockey history. Let's go back into that. Where did that all start? How did you get into goalie? What age were you? Yeah, I was... I was a little bit older. I think I was 12 years old. I'd been a defenseman before that, and I was a pretty average defenseman. And the team was looking to go a different direction with the goalie on the team, and I kind of had the opportunity to fill in there, and it came together, and it ended up being something I was good at and something I enjoyed and ended up doing for quite a long time, I guess. Yeah. And so like we said earlier, circumstance – uh, something you had been somewhat interested to get into, but then you went on to play at Northern Michigan. Yeah, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, so I played high school there and then left home when I was a senior in high school. I went to Sioux City, Iowa, and then the next year I went to Kelowna, British Columbia, and played out there, and ended up getting drafted by the Vancouver Canucks and signed with with Northern, which was a place I, de I definitely wanted to play in the WCHA growing up in Madison, watching the Badgers and a lot of those other teams coming into town. So I was excited to be in that league and be able to go back to my hometown and play them at least from uh, the visitor's bench. Yeah, right. So you had got drafted before you went to Northern, uh, but a long road after Northern to get into the NHL, hey? Definitely. I mean, I didn't have the greatest college career so i was a fourth round draft pick with the canucks but then at the end of my college career they didn't sign me yeah so i was kind of starting back from ground zero and really didn't have a contract coming out of college and ended up getting some professional tryouts in like the east coast hockey league and i started at the bottom and you know it was kind of a it was a long road for me to get where i was and you know a lot things happened that uh you know were fortunate and after probably about three years i was finally probably able to get a opportunity in the, the minor leagues at last and, and mm -hmm. finally in the nhl which was definitely a, a dream come true for me yeah you said before you made it to the nhl though you had people tell you that you were not going to make it you're not good enough uh you might as well pack up your bags and go home because this isn't gonna happen eh? yeah i mean i started about as low as you could start i think the first my first year pro in the east coast hockey league i think i lost my first nine games yeah so 
that year didn't start out that great and I was able to win the next seven but and then my second year I was kind of on a two-way contract where I'd get called up to the minor leagues and I think I was called up for like a month and never got to play and then my third year I went to training camp with that same team and they basically told me that hey you know you're not good enough you're not gonna play in this league for going in a different direction they brought a different goalie in and then I got sent down and you know I kind of remember that to this day where I got sent down sent on a a greyhound bus and it was just a long miserable ride to where I was going and you know I kind of just said you know whatever kind of screw you I'm just gonna go down here and work hard and whatever happens happens and it was it was a weird year because I ended up doing really good and then teams wanted to call me up but I was saying no to teams where you know I'm not gonna get called up and sit the bench like if you want me to come up and you're gonna play me then I'll gladly go but Mm -hmm. I'm not just gonna be a fill-in right I went through that for a month the year before and I guess I was kind of soured with you know how I felt I kind of got treated by that organization so I continued to play well and then eventually I got another opportunity where the Orlando Solar Bears who was the farm team for Atlanta at the time they called me up and gave them the same thing you know if you're if you're going to play me I'll come otherwise I'm not coming they said well we're hearing good things about you we haven't really seen you play just come here practice if we think we're going to play you, we'll keep you around. Otherwise, we'll we'll send you back because I was going to miss the, the all-star game in the league I was at. So I went there, and all their goalies ended up getting hurt and called up. So I was the only guy left, so they really had no choice but to play me. And so I played that night and ended up getting a shutout. And then I think, I think my first three out of four games or four out of five games, I got shutouts. Yeah. So then it was all of a sudden a a buzz about me through, you know, pro hockey where all of a sudden teams were really watching me and had a couple other call-ups and I got shutouts with those teams too. Hmm. And before you know it, I got sent back down to the team in the United Hockey League and there's NHL teams coming to watch me play at the lowest level of pro hockey. And night Tampa came to watch me, I had... 73 shots and we won i think three to two and that night they signed me and then i uh ended up going to going to tampa and that whole (laughs) my first game was kind of a big big mess too because they signed me flew me into tampa and basically told me hey bring your gear you might you might be able to practice with us we just want you to you know see the trainers and and whatever else and it was basically sounded like it was kind of like a little vacation Hmm. so i went there and as soon as i landed got picked up by a limo went to the team office and they said hey you know kind of a change in plans we want you to play Hmm. so okay so i ended up having one pregame skate and then that night i played against the defending stanley cup champion dallas stars so that was kind of a, a whirlwind where to this day I've, the leagues are kind of different now but I was the only player ever to go from 
straight for the United Hockey League and basically bypass the the farm team system and go straight to the NHL. So that was uh, definitely an experience. Yeah, for sure. Huh. And I'm, I'm, I paid attention to hockey a lot, especially growing up, but I don't remember the years. Like, was Brett Hall, was he on the – he would have been on the Red Wings probably at that point, or do you remember the – I think he was – he was in Dallas when they won. So I don't, I remember Madonna scored on me. So Madonna was still there. I don't know if Brett Hall, he might've been there. Okay. And then it was, you know, one of my childhood idols at Belfour was yeah. on. So just skating around in warm up, you know, stretching out at center ice and looking over your shoulder and Ed Belfour is there. So, yeah, I mean, it was a crazy, got to play against some, uh, great players and then some cool rinks. Like I played, Obviously, in Tampa, I played in Montreal, in Ottawa, in Toronto, in Philly, in Denver. So, played against the Avalanche there. So, I mean, I got to see some great things and some great memories. I mean, it feels like it was a lifetime ago at this point. I think because that was that my first year there was 2000. So, I mean, that's. 22 years ago so right right how much of the game is uh, and i'm sure maybe this is something you've studied uh, of course it's got to be how much of it is mental the goalie side of things just the the roller coasters managing it the ups the downs whatever else how do you how did you manage that and how much of the game is part of that for you and for other goalies i think once you get to though that level i think it's almost entirely mental yeah. I mean, if you look at an NHL goalie or a college goalie, like there's no, there's no saves or skills that the NHL goalie knows that the college goalie doesn't know. But the NHL goalies and professional athletes, whatever sport, have just figured it out mentally where they're able to to focus and and compete for sixty minute minutes on a daily basis. So, I think that's the big thing. Currently, I'm. St- helping out with the goalies at at northern michigan university again and you know that's kind of a lot about what we talk about where you know i may not there's no secret glove save i'm going to teach them but Mm. if i can teach them how to you know manage the game and manage you know their focus and their ability to perform at at their top level that's the difference that between guys who are able to play professionally for a long period of time and then guys who may have all the talent in the world and can never seem to get to that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the things you focus on from the mental side of things? Is it, I guess you can dive into it, but is it uh, don't let the highs get too high and the lows too low throughout the game or or I guess what, yeah. What are some of the things you focus on? I mean, that's, that's definitely part of it. I think, you know, there's there's an art to winning a game as a goalie. And part of that is, you know, when goals go in, how they go in. You know, anytime, statistically, anytime your team scores first, you have like a 75% chance of winning that game. Hmm. So that's how important the first goal is. If you start on the wrong foot, your chance of winning starts to decrease. So just the the mentality that you know your goal every game is to get a shutout it really makes no difference 
if your team scores one, two, or three, it has no impact on on what your job is. So mm-hmm. you have to have that type of an approach, and it's it's difficult to be one hundred percent focused for sixty minutes, and that's the the big challenge because most goals go in when you're maybe ninety nine percent focused. You're just kind of daydreaming a little bit. And, mm-hmm. You know, I call it kind of the the fog in your brain where you know the games you get a shutout it's maybe easier to be 100% focused it's the games that you know you're struggling where you really have to kind of force that and really break the game down to whether you know it's five minute segments or 10 minute segments just to mentally handle the pressure of being focused because if I told you right now I need you to get a shutout Mm -hmm. you'd say I'm crazy but if I said I need you to get a shutout in the next minute. Right. Mentally, that's something that that's not intimidating where, okay, I can do that. And then that minute goes by and then I come to you again. Well, I need you to get a shutout in the next minute. And if you can just kind of leapfrog your way through a game and maintain that focus, then then that's uh, that's what you need to do on a nightly basis. And that's the difference. I mean, you look at, I think recently there's been some athletes and stuff where it's there's been i wouldn't call it a mental breakdown but there's a tremendous amount of pressure on on an athlete trying to accomplish a task in front of that many people i think Mm -hmm. i heard somebody say that you know physiology wise a person trying to hit a baseball tie game bases loaded ninth inning their body's reacting like they're getting attacked by a lion huh. like their receptors are just going bonkers and it's the people who can kind of manage that type of pressure that that are end up i mean in the sports world they make a lot of money mm-hmm. those are your pressure guys the guys who can manage that type of moment and you know i always told myself you know you want to define the moment don't let the moment define you yeah <clears throat> you wonder is that something where again i guess uh, i was asking you early, asking you earlier about being uh naturally gifted or you work hard that that ability to handle that pressure is that a, a natural gift or is that something just through repeat processes or i guess again it's got to be a mix or what are your thoughts on that it's probably a mix like at some point you're gonna have to deal with adversity and you're going to have to a lot of it comes i think you have to believe in yourself mm-hmm. like you have to have a really almost an arrogant intense believe in yourself because if you if you don't believe in yourself probably nobody else is going to so mm-hmm. i mean that can probably be sports or whatever else right but that that belief is either going to manifest itself externally where the person extreme appears extremely cocky or it could be an internal belief that other people don't see so you could see the the most mild-mannered kind of even-keeled person but i can guarantee deep down inside they have an extreme cockiness that that you may not be able to see but if you don't have that then you're not going to be able to deal with adversity because there's going to be times where either people are going to tell you're not good enough or the score is going to tell you that, Hey, you weren't good enough tonight. And Mm -hmm. how do you respond from that? If you're not very confident in your ability, you're going to, you're going to continue to 
spiral downward and not recover from it. So that's a big part of it. Yeah. I could almost tie that into, into real estate. Like as weird as it sounds, I would never go out and say, Hey, I'm the best real estate agent ever. But when I go into an appointment with a client and say, I'm competing with another agent in my head, I'm like, I'm the agent for you. I am the best choice. I'm the best agent there is. I, I, I know, probably know that's not true. I mean, I'm a month into real estate. I know this guy that's been doing it for 10 years is better than me, but I still go into it with that mentality. Like I'm a pro from day one, you know? Um, and it feels like that does have an impact. Like if you believe in yourself or if you don't believe in yourself, then your client certainly won't, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, the, from that focus side of things, obviously you had to have a lot of that to get to the level where you did tying that into hunting. Do you find that the, the focus when you're about to kill an animal or shoot, uh, you know, whatever it might be, is there a connection there? I definitely think so. I think, you know, I mean, hunting's is obviously different and stakes are, are lower than, you know, I mean, you don't have mm-hmm. a bunch of people watching you, but, uh, I'm confident that, you know, if I get an opportunity, I'm going to take advantage of it. And I think it's also like, I've always, I don't, I think there's times where I think I, my hunting philosophy is the same as when I was playing. Cause you know, I'm will, willing to put in more effort and work longer and figure mm-hmm. I'll just eventually get it done. I think, uh, you know, the last three years, the deer I've killed in Michigan are this year is on the 29th, the year, December 29th, yeah. year before December 16th and year mm. before that, December 27th. So yeah. I think a lot of people probably gave up and were done with it by then. So I right. just knew eventually it's going to, it's going to happen. And I'm always, every time I go out, I'm confident that I'm going to do it. You know, if you weren't confident, you're going to end up getting an opportunity. It'd be pretty depressing to get, to go out there right. and sit in the cold. So right. I think you have to believe in yourself, believe in what you're doing and, and, uh, be willing to outwork other people. Yeah. So you, we can save it for off air if you want to, but late season is something I haven't tackled. Like, I feel like I've got a little bit of a handle locally, deer hunting, archery, deer and rifle, whatever else late season, I suppose it's all around the food, but what's been your, again, we can save it for later, but do you have, we can uh, go. I don't care. Yeah. I can do it on air. Sure. What, what, what do you focus on late season whitetail? Yeah. It's been, it's been changing. Like I, I thought originally that they, they migrated more than they did, but mm-hmm. now I'm finding that if I can find a deer living in a certain area in velvet, that I'll probably be able to, he'll, he's going to return there probably back in December. Okay. And it's been a lot. Every year has been different. Like some year it's, been on acorns and some years it's been on brows and i think you just have to kind of a lot of it ends up coming back to scouting like the the deer i shot this year he ended up going back to an acorn flat that i found last spring and i remember looking at the flat and you could see that the leaves were really like broken up into tiny little pieces Hmm. which is like anytime they're digging for those acorns in the deep snow, they're just trashing the leaves compared to like, if it's fall, they can kind of kick them aside and pick the acorns out and the leaves don't get destroyed like they do. But like, if you find that in the spring where the leaves are just totally just shredded, huh. that's from them really pounding on them with their, with their paws. And I ended up 
find an area that had that. I'd been hunting a couple different other bucks through the rut and it got to mid-December and I had nothing going. So I was like, well, I'm going to go back, look in that area. So I went back to that area. I had a, a camera that had been sitting there for probably two months. So I wanted to at least pull that camera. Walk back there. There's probably no tracks for like a mile. And then all of a sudden I got to this acorn flat and there's some real heavy trails. And sure enough, I saw a couple trees where they were pawned acorns a lot and ended up setting up in that area. And then I ended up shooting the buck I shot probably a week later. So hmm. I think, I don't think the bucks migrate with the with the does like into the deer yards as early. I think I think the bigger ones shed before they go into the yards. Yeah. Like I don't know how many people see like big racked deer in the deer yards. I think they either don't go there or they shed before they go there because I don't even really find many sheds in a lot of those spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had cameras set up on three different migration trails this December uh, and nothing but does and young bucks, not one big buck crossed it the whole month of December. Yeah, I don't think they every winter's different. Like the only the only time I've done good with any type of migration is like if there's a lot of snow in like a week where all the deer were forced to move at one time. Mm-hmm. So I think it was 3 or 4 years ago I think we got like 60 inches in a week. Then all of a sudden I saw a bunch of random bucks kind of moving to wherever they were moving. Hmm. But I think on a normal winter, I think they they go back to where they spent the summer. So if you get a, I think if you get a velvet picture of a buck, you can go back and probably be able to find them in December in the same area. Hmm. Okay, the ones you've gotten, have you been hunting over bait, a scrape line, or what have you been doing as far as that goes? I normally hunt a lot of scrapes. I try not to bait. Like I got nothing against it. Right. I think there's just times it makes it harder to especially in the rut like i don't like to because it wrecks spots for morning hunting Mm -hmm. so i rather i ended up i end up seeing a lot of deer between like nine in the morning and maybe 11 so if if you throw bait out in that spot you basically ruined it because the does or whatever other deer are going to be hanging out there in the morning and you won't be able to hunt it in the morning and then you kind of ruin it for other parts. So yeah, I try not to bait. I've thrown it out late, especially if I'm trying to find something. It's mm-hmm. a good place to get a camera, but a lot of times I'll hunt off of it or if I can get in an area where I don't have to use it, you're usually better off. You can hunt it more and mm-hmm. not kind of have to deal with deer that are completely on alert right yeah since i moved back up my wife and i moved here three years ago or so i've committed to not baiting i got not against it but i just figured i'd be a better deer hunter long term if i didn't uh and it feels like my my buck sightings have gone up like my midday buck sightings i'm more prone to see them versus when i was baiting you'd have pictures of them galore but all nocturnal all all that night And, and again when you did see them they were on high alert like times 10 so it was just tough to tough to make it happen i've talked talked with a lot of people who are the same thing where they're trying to get away from baiting because i was the same way like i'd go down to wisconsin every rut and i'd go down there and hunt for a week or two weeks and see all kinds of deer and then i'd come back here and i'd end up throwing bait out and then got to the point where why the heck am i even doing this like Mm -hmm. this makes no sense you end up getting married to that bait pile so bad that 
it influences your decisions and you end up not hunting good areas because it's like, well, I got bait out in this other spot. So you end up going there. And then, you know, I think, like you said, I think you're way better off. Like the year I, the year I said, I'm done with it. I'm not hunting over bait. I mean, I was seeing like eight bucks a day and mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Like it's, there's guys who are great bait hunters. Like I know guys who shoot big ones all the time and they got it figured out. And I think you can do it if, especially early, if you're doing it fairly frequently and using cameras, mm-hmm. I think you can do it. It gets harder as you get into the, into the season and then maybe late you could do it again. But like you said, I think you're bait way better off if you don't bait. And I think that's kind of, a bad thing for up hunting where i think there is kind of a generation who hasn't learned as much as they would have learned if they were never baiting because mm-hmm. there's guys who there's guys who follow tracks right now right who shoot big ones every year yeah so that's kind of getting to be a a lost art with with how people are dependent on baiting yeah have you done much tracking i've tried yeah. I've not, I've always, I don't gun hunt. So I usually just bow hunt through the gun season. So that's kind of influenced where I, I haven't got into as much as, much as I would, yeah. but I've all, I've been interested in it and listening to, you know, different people talk about it. And mm-hmm. I know guys who are extremely successful at it and you'd learn so much about how a deer behaves and what they do compared to, you know, if you're just going to sit in one spot and. Right. Yeah. I've been having a blast. I mean, yeah, like you said, you're never married to a spot. So I'll be a, a wide range of different places that you go to. And it's just a new adventure every day. Um, you see a lot of new country. And again, you deer take you into places. I've got so much to learn from the tracking side of things I've attempted, but no, not successfully have I gotten one yet. But yeah, you've got guys locally that year in and year out, they'll succeed every year on nice bucks. And that, that'd be fun to get to that point. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so it's been fun though. I've been enamored with uh, the, kind of like the big wood, big woods bucks type hunting and trying to just get after it. again. Tons to learn, but for sure in three years I've seen a big change and uh, and maybe it's just luck, but it feels like I'm seeing deer before they see me more frequently compared to when I first started. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a blast. I think, I mean, it might be trending in that direction too with uh, with guys starting to do it now. I'm you know, more guys I think are maybe passing on some younger deer and I could care less what you shoot. Like you can shoot whatever the heck you want, but, mm-hmm. but if you're going to shoot, if you're going to shoot younger ones, you can't complain that there's no big ones. No, like right. one or the one or the other. So I think, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of big country up here and, you know, I probably hunt like five different areas that are, you know, completely different big areas and bounce around and, move around and try to find deer and i run cameras on scrapes and stuff like that to kind of get an idea what's running around but mm-hmm. it's a i mean up deer hunting has a rich tradition i mean we live in beautiful country there's big areas like even public land i mean you can hunt up here and not have to deal with anybody we were talking earlier about going out of state and dealing with the the circus of people at times and mm-hmm. Up here, I mean, I'm sure there's areas like that, but I mean, it's a it's a great great place to hunt, and I definitely love hunting up here and hunting the big woods areas. And 
tackling, you know, a, definitely a, a worthy adversary. Yeah, for sure. No, it's a tough, uh, to, to kill a mature whitetail in the UP is a crazy challenge. You hear about guys in like New York and Maine and stuff like that, and they say it's the hardest deer to hunt. It probably is, but I'd, I'd be curious to see them compared to us. Not like it's a competition, but I'd just be curious to know like a, a UP or a CUNA or, or this area buck versus, uh, again, a Maine or a New York big woods buck. It's probably the same story. but I think pretty similar. Like I've list, I think you're probably the big woods bucks. You're probably talking Hal Blood and yeah. his podcast yeah. and stuff like that. And that's what I was listening to before. And so that's Maine. And when I was playing hockey, I ended up hunting a lot of stuff out east. Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts. So I was, the good thing about hockey was you just, you'd practice probably in the morning and then you'd have most of the afternoon off. So every afternoon I'd go out and I'd go bow hunting. And I think, I think in Connecticut, I was there for two years. And I think I ended up shooting 10 deer out there. So it was definitely giving me something to do. The funny thing was I had guys on the team who would play those, silly video games so they'd yeah. go back to their house or apartment and they'd sit a couple of them were actually playing that like a deer hunting video game <laughs> i was like you guys are crazy why don't you just go do it yeah so i'd go out and do the real thing and it definitely made hockey Gave you a good release from, like, we talked about the pressure and doing different things. So it was kind of like my release where it gave me something to do yeah. in the afternoon to kind of, you know, get away from from the pressure of, of playing and go out there in the woods. And I always, like, especially, like, if you had a bad game or whatever, I always thought, well, I'll go take my frustrations out on a poor, helpless animal. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have any teammates that wanted to get engaged or was that just? It was usually just me. I think one year there's maybe one other guy, but it's normally just me. Yeah. Huh. And uh, so you've been in a taxidermy for a while. You've got a taxidermy shop locally. How long have you been open? Licensed in Michigan for 10 years. And then I learned when I was in high school. So, I mean, that was uh, graduated high school in 92. So. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, 30 some years ago. But yeah. so I learned mostly fish when I was in high school and then I started doing deer heads. And then it got to the point once I was up here that I had so many people ask me to do them where I ended up getting getting licensed. And now I've had uh, the business face off taxidermy where mm-hmm. <laughs> combine deer hunting and, uh, and hockey. So yeah, yeah, I end up staying busy with uh I do deer heads, bear, and fish. Okay. So I don't do mammals and other stuff. Okay. Huh. And in high school, you started, how did that come to be? Was that something you were searching or is it just like, hey, here's a high school job and let's get rolling? It was a friend of mine. His, his dad had a friend who was a taxidermist. So we were in high school. I fished a lot. I, I started bow hunting in, in high school, but we fished a lot. Yeah. So it was a lot of mostly like largemouth bass fishing, stuff like that. So I ended up getting a couple mounts through this taxidermist and he, he was doing it on the side. He was actually really good. And it got to the point where it's like, Hey, you know, will you teach us how to do that? And he kind of brushed us off and maybe gave us a couple pointers. Then we went back, did a couple of mounts on our own and, 
ended up getting back with him and he critiqued us and helped us. And it was just kind of a, a process where, you know, started doing more and more and getting more proficient. And then, uh, you know, I'm still really good friends with that taxidermist to this day. We're, we're friends and, uh, we used to fish and still hunt and do different things with each other, but hmm. that's, that's where I learned. So learned from a taxidermist who basically I was a young kid. I had no money and tried to figure out how to mount a fish on my own and right. progress from there. Yeah. So then you obviously played hockey for quite a while. You had dropped taxidermy at that point. You weren't actively engaged. Yeah. I wasn't doing any taxidermy, maybe a tiny bit in the summers. But then uh, it wasn't until I retired from hockey that that I got more into it again, where it started to be something that I was doing quite a bit of and then got licensed. Yeah, yeah. And you enjoy it? I enjoy it. I mean, it gets you off off the couch, and it's a little bit of spending cash that I end up putting into hunting again probably. So, yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm somewhat learning, maybe it's an age thing that as you get older, because I found this true to, to be true about myself, that as I get older, I get way more focused on what I'm doing. Instead of having 17 hobbies, I've got two and I'm all in. That's kind of what this is about, is obsessed. Have you have you found that to be true too? Or were you always where you're like all in from even back in the high school days as far as things go? I think when I was playing hockey, I think that was the big thing. Okay. And then once I retired from hockey, I... I used to fish quite a bit and then it was probably about five years ago that that I've gotten obsessed with, with deer hunting to where, you know, you're scouting spring and summer and, you know, getting everything, finding spots for fall and that's all you're thinking about to where, you know, the last couple summers I hardly fished at all, mm-hmm. if at any. So I think uh, definitely obsessive yeah in some some regards i think it's just uh you know i don't think there's winning or losing the same way in hunting as there was in hockey but yeah it's the same preparation like in hockey i knew i'd have success if i prepared and practiced and did all these other things so in hunting like i don't want to go through the summer and then hit fall and think, Oh, I should have done this or I should have done that, or I'm not ready to go. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of the, the obsession where you're, you want to give yourself every opportunity you possibly can to be successful in the fall. So that ends up translating to spending more and more time preparing and finding spots and, and figuring out what's going on. I think I'll put probably a hundred miles spring walking around trying to find new spots and then you know it gets to be late summer and you end up walking around you're setting up cameras and doing different things so Mm -hmm. definitely definitely put the time and it's not uh it's not something where you just go out there and can expect to be successful maybe maybe you can once or twice but consistently it's probably not going to happen yeah that's something I haven't done is the spring scouting, but I've been introduced to that and I plan on doing that this spring that you can learn a lot about what happened in the fall when the snow melts, hey? Yeah, before green up, you, it pretty much is going to look the exact same way because I'm keen a lot on scrapes. So if I can find any big scrapes in the spring, that'll be definitely an area I, I key on. Yeah. Because a lot of that 
a lot of that sign from the fall is going to disappear come mm-hmm. summer once uh you know the ferns and everything else starts growing a lot of that can can be hidden so yeah the best time definitely the the spring because the woods basically look almost exactly like it did in november yeah you've got at least one hunt or maybe a couple hunts on youtube through lone wolf custom gear how did you end up partnering with partnering with them it ended up kind of being a goofy thing because two years ago like i i started i I have a Facebook. I made up a fake guy on Facebook because I had to post just for my taxidermy site. So you needed you needed to have a Facebook page to create like a, a company page. Like you had mm-hmm. to have somebody who posted or whatever. So I really had no interest in doing any of that. So I just kind of made up a fake guy. Mm-hmm. So that was Ranger Matthews. I just made him up yeah. just so I could post on there because I really had no intention on doing anything. And then I started posting things and then different things happened. And then it kind of went back to my hockey days where I had that kind of longing to be part of a group or a team or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so I think, well, you know, these are the companies I'm interested in that, you know, I have respect for the products they have and then the people who are involved. So I ended up filling out those, there's like an affiliate application where you just kind of promote their products or whatever and become involved and Mm -hmm. so i got involved with lone wolf custom gear which was great like if you know anything about bow hunting the the owner andre DeQuisto, i mean he's kind of the the godfather of mobile hunting and kind of that philosophy and style of hunting compared to you know a lot of the the tree stands back in the day were clunky and heavy and he designed some mobile lightweight stuff. And so to become involved with that company has been a lot of, a lot of fun and got to, you know, talk with him on the phone every so often. And we got to go to his house last summer and do some different things with them. And through his company, they have an offshoot set white tailed, addictions tv show Mm -hmm. that i remember watching when i was in high school so they end up taking you know the footage throughout the year and then making an episode so i had an episode last year that got uh put on their youtube channel and yeah that was it was it was interesting you know i definitely have a lot of room for improvement with uh you know the self-filming and stuff like that but yeah but it was fun i enjoyed it yeah that, and the buck you got last year that was a buck you had been chasing for quite a few years hey eh? or at yeah, least you had history four years i've been trying to shoot him yeah yeah so i, I think he was probably around seven because four years ago he would have been something that i would have shot and then you know you'd see him here or there and get him on camera and just could never get it together and then lucky enough had him stroll on by last year and yeah got the job done and to get a up whitetail of of anything over five years old is uh, amazing i mean they don't there's a lot i mean a lot of hunters a lot of tags everyone can shoot two deer uh so there's not a lot of old old age class deer or if they are they've found a way to live i mean they're somehow they're uh yeah living in some hole somewhere or something yeah yeah i think there's i mean they're out there you just have to you have to find them i mean that's kind of why I don't focus on one area because 
you know, there might not be one there. You kind of have to have some backup plans and some different areas and different places to go. And the hardest part's finding them. And, you know, once you find one, it seems that, uh, you know, I think once they hit four, they may be kind of figured out how to survive and they end up getting a little bit older, but yeah, it's definitely a challenge up here. Yeah. Did you, you said you're okay. You're obsessed with hockey. You're obsessed with the hunting. Have you thought about that? What makes you that way? Or, or is it just a way of life? I think it's, you know, you, you just uh, want to be successful and you recognize that the only way you're going to be successful is if you put the work in. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you kind of do things halfway, then you're, you know, those are going to be, you're going to get average results. You know, if you put a average amount of time in, you're going to get an average results. I think we talked to, you asked me if I played hockey anymore. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, part of the reason I don't, play hockey anymore is because i don't practice hockey anymore yeah and then you expect to do good but you're not gonna be very good at it if you're not practicing it anymore so it ends up just being frustrating so yeah seems i think probably dive in head first and you know if you want to have uh success then you're gonna have to put the work in Mm -hmm. yeah funny even like golfing i i really enjoy golfing uh, when I did golf, I would golf three, four days a week. Uh, and now I'm married, kids, whatever else. So if I'm going to golf, it's uh, between hunting and other priorities. I can, uh, yeah, once a month or something. So I just hardly even, I don't even do it because I'd rather just not golf than golf once a month and just be frustrated and not have any consistency at all or whatever else. Whereas I think some, a lot of people have the ability to recreationally do it. And I just, I really struggle with it without, unless I can just do it all in, like I'm, yeah, have a hard time with it. Yeah, I think I'm the same way I've, I haven't golfed and it's been a while now, but it's the same thing. It ended up being, you go to relax and you spend four hours of frustration yeah. <laughs> and by the end of it, you're, you're ready to be done. So, yeah. yeah. The, uh, how did you get introduced to Western hunting? You spent one, one season so far and that's something you're thinking about diving into. Is that just through, uh, exposure online or through guys at Lone Wolf or how did you, what, what, what came that or what brought that about? It kind of, it ended up, I ended up reconnecting with a guy I went to high school. It was actually the same guy whose dad was friends with the taxidermist. Hmm. So Jake Mershberger, who I grew up with, played hockey with in high school. Ended up kind of reconnecting with him. He had been going out to uh, Nebraska and I'd always been interested in kind of doing some different things, whether it was elk or mule deer or whatever, but I've always kind of been obsessed with shooting bigger whitetails that you know there's only so much time in the year yeah but it it fit fit together good just where we could go out there and it was the either or tag where you could do a mule deer or a, or a whitetail and then my dad was able to go out there and he was going to chase antelope so it's just kind of i've enjoyed doing those early season hunts it's almost like a bonus hunt mm-hmm. where you know early september Went out to North Dakota for three years and shot a couple of whitetails out there, but it's just a felt like a bonus season compared to, you know, we don't start up here till October, so it's just kind of like a little a little blessing to go out there and chase something around early. Yeah, early September. Yeah, bow hunting North Dakota when I was living out there, that was always unreal. Labor Day weekend, you're 
season started, whereas guys in the UP had to wait another month or so. But yeah, do you think you think you'll get into it uh, more and more as the years go by? You're going to start trying to head out west more and more. I think so because it was fun with mule deer. I, their personality seemed well different than a whitetail, but it was like enjoyable. Where they seem like I don't know what your experience. It doesn't seem like they blow as much. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if you get a whitetail doe, she'll sit there for hours and give away your position. I didn't see that with mule deer. Mm-hmm. They seem to respond differently where they they look at you and it's just a different temperament and I thought they're, you know, pretty cool looking animal. And yeah. So I'll probably end up doing some more of that hunting. And then from a taxidermist, I always thought that, uh, you know, whether it's a mule deer or a white deer, that those early season capes, mm-hmm. I always thought they're really cool. Not a whole lot of hair on their ears and and uh, just a totally different look to them, whether or not they're still in velvet or not. I always thought they were cool looking. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. They have a di- different temperament. It's uh, the young bucks and the does, for sure, you can get away with a lot more than I'd say that, than a whitetail. Uh, but the old deer are a different breed, for sure. Um, and that, yeah, some people say, hey, they're dumb animals or whatever it is compared to a whitetail. But, yeah, again, the young ones, you can get in on them a lot easier. The old ones are... Yeah, they're just a whole different animal, and they're they're yeah, they disappear so quickly. They hear you from a mile away, not necessarily a mile, but anyways, it's yeah, it's a a tough but super engaging and fun, uh, super physically active hunt. It, yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, that was because normally when I'm whitetail hunt, you're you know I'm normally just a stand hunter, so mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun just to walk around and kind of chase them around and be you know it was more of a physical hunt and. Mm-hmm. get it done that way but uh i'll definitely go back yeah and there's different styles but i just love glassing like all summer i'd spend just scouting and, and glassing deer uh it's like a puzzle like you're sitting here looking at this huge hillside and you're like i know there's deer i just gotta find them and am i am i good enough to find them so sit there and grid and find them with the binoculars or spotting scope or whatever else and yeah it's uh, yeah I can't, I can't get enough of it but yeah the uh you mentioned the capes i got a, a, a early season mule deer mounted and that cape is so thin so it's difficult because you can't hide a, like i shot it in the front chest yeah. you can't you can't hide a a broadhead wound or something like that but the uh that's something you'd be shooting for though hey is try to get some of those early season capes and work with those yeah i let i think they're super cool looking and part i would never want to mount like i don't know how you like with cwd and stuff you're you have to take it off the skull and do different things. Yeah. So normally when I mount a deer head, the only cut I make is from horn to horn. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. Right. And, and there's no cut along the back or anything like huh. that. And that's, I ended up taking in quite a few early season white tails, like even from the youth hunt up here. Yeah. And with those short haired deer, I mean, it's hard to su- to hide a seam or, you know, their, their necks are a little bit smaller and they can be a challenge. They're a challenged amount, but I think they look really cool. Mm-hmm. So if you have the ability to, you know, just make that horn to horn cut, you're going to have a way better looking mount, especially if it's a, an early season cape. Yeah. I can't, I can't even visualize that, how you would cape it out horn to horn. I've always would have thought cutting along the back of the neck. Yeah. So you just, 
it's going to be a straight cut horn to horn and then you'll end up popping the hide around the, the pedicle with like a screwdriver yeah and then you can kind of peel that back and then you end up taking like uh like a rotary like a oscillating tool mm-hmm. and you'll end up cutting the skull plate out okay and then that skull plate pops out and then you'd cape the animal the rest of the way oh, just sure. like a sock right okay. so you'd only have that four inch seam to, hmm. to sew and then you can also especially with with those capes with no hair like if you get any, get any kind of shrinkage it's going to pull on that seam yeah like i'm sure you can take your hand along the back of that mount you're going to be able to feel the seam right right so if you don't make that cut you can also get a better stretch on the hide so it'll hmm. fit on a, on a better form because mm-hmm. i'll usually just put a basketball in the neck and i can inflate that basketball and it's going to stretch the neck right but if you have a cut the whole way along the back it's almost impossible to to get a lot of stretch because you're i mean you, there's kind of some different products they sell to try to stretch it but you're not gonna you're not gonna get near the stretch you can get if you're inflating the neck with hmm. a basketball so mm-hmm. i mean if you next time you shoot one do that and you'll get a a better a cleaner looking mount right it'll probably look better because you end it because the neck on the neck on an early season deer is probably three to four inches smaller mm-hmm. than it's going to be in november right so they look look different yeah. than they than they will but yeah, mine was a September 11th North Dakota mule deer, and it was, uh, yeah, thin, thin neck. I mean, compared to what it would have been in mid-November for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, I'm, I'm hopping around, but this is all just stuff I'm engaged in or interested in. But I'm curious, the the helping the goalie side of things, do you enjoy that? Is it fun to be able to pass on some of the knowledge that you have to these younger guys that are playing? I do. And I think the big, the big point we've kind of talked about my career where, you know, it I didn't really get an opportunity until three years into my pro career. So when I look at my career, I think it probably took me seven years to figure out what it took to win. Mm-hmm. So my thought is, you know, if I can help these younger guys shorten that, that learning curve and help them figure out, you know, what it's going to take to win. And, you know, a lot of that goes back to when I was in college, I thought I was working hard, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize that till. I turned pro and I saw guys who were actually working hard in practice. Right. So changing my, you know, practice habits, how I approach the game, what I did mentally to make things manageable. Mm -hmm. So all those things took me what I felt like seven years to learn. Yeah. And if I can help these young guys kind of take some of what I might've learned and implement it into their game, then, then you, that's just, you know, I'm, passing on something useful and helping them get to where they want to get. And hopefully, you know, they get that same opportunity to play in the NHL that I did. Mm -hmm. The not practicing hard, you're talking to, I suppose, a mix, a duration, but also intensity or what, what do you mean by that? You weren't practicing hard and then you realized these guys were. Intensity wise, I think like your goal at the beginning of practice should be to let no goals in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, because there's legendary stories about Dominic Hasek, and yeah. I watched him practice a few times, and he'd go through an entire NHL practice and not get scored on. Right. So 
Yeah. I mean, just think about that. And <laughs> right. it, it's it was to the point where if like anybody on his team scored, it'd be like a big celebration where they'd be banging his, their yeah. sticks and kind of giving them grief for, for getting scored on. Right. But that was that was the level you have to be at if you want that to translate to to game time. Because if you put that level of work into practice, you don't really have to worry as much about the games. Right. Because all the work's been done. Like, yeah. You just sure. have to show up and do what you've been doing for the last week. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of just go through the motions and practice, then it's all of a sudden that increases the nerves and because all of a sudden you're expecting yourself to perform at a higher level than you, you have throughout the week. So right. that all, you know, impacts consistency and different things. So, <laughs> you know, when I was in college, you know, and I specifically remember an instance where, you know, there may be one shot that's given you a whole lot of problem. Mm-hmm. And I remember for me, it was like a low blocker shot, you know, maybe about a foot off the ice. Yeah. And I remember I was in practice and somebody took a shot and, you know, I kind of like whatever 75% effort or whatever. And then went in and I was like, my one opportunity to get better that whole practice. And I blew it because I wasn't 100% committed to stopping that puck. Yeah. So you have to, you have to want to stop every single puck if you want to get better. And, you know, I mean, there's, and I see it today with most most of the college goalies I work with aren't quite there mm-hmm. where they think they're working hard, but they don't understand that there's another gear that yeah. they can, they're, they're going to have to find right. if they want to compete at that next level. So, yeah. Yeah. And has that, does that have anything to do with like today's day and age, for example, or is that just life? Like a 20 year old kid typically doesn't necessarily have that next gear without knowing how to find it. I'm not too sure if it's today's day and age or it's just, uh, you know, you haven't gotten to the point where, you know, you expect that of yourself. And mm-hmm. I mean, working hard's not easy. No, so right. it's, it's way easier not just to kind of go through the motions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that level of, of commitment, you know, whether you have to learn it by watching somebody else or you you learn it by not having success at some point. If you want to have that type of success and you, you're forced to basically figure it out, you're forced to either figure it out or be done. Right. So for me, it, you know, when I was playing in the bottom leagues of professional hockey, it got to the point where, you know, I'm either going to figure this out, and work my tail off or I'm going to be done. Mm-hmm. And fortunately enough, I was able to kind of figure it out, you know, the things I needed to do to be successful and get some opportunities and, and go from there. Yeah. You said you had guys that were like, uh, or that told you, Hey, you're done. You're not going to make it. Uh, we were talking before, did that bring up that intensity level? Because that was fire to say, well, I'm going to show you or, or were you already working on that intensity level before that? Or how does that play into it? I think it kind of, so I had that happen in the beginning of the year. And then, uh, I remember there was a point the year before where it kind of clicked where I was basically the only goalie. Mm-hmm. 
So the other goalie had gotten hurt, and I think my my backup was like, uh, I really only think he might have played like junior B. So okay. basically, he was just a filler. Right. Like there's zero chance he was gonna play. Yeah. So at that point, it was, you know, either either I figure out what the heck I'm doing or I'm going down in flames because yeah. there's nobody to save me. Right. So I think that kind of, you know, forced me to figure out, you know, what it was going to take to play every single game and be successful and stay mentally focused, not, you know, kind of break down mm-hmm. mentally. And that was kind of the, the start of where things kind of turned for me. Mm-hmm. Where it was trial by fire. And then uh, the following year, I mean, I don't know if that, I mean, it pissed me off when they told me that. And, you know, it, it got me motivated. But I think part of it was just, uh, you know, wanting to be successful wherever wherever I was. Like, I was like, fine, if I'm never going to get called up. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. I'm just going to go down here. I'm going to have success down here. I'm going to win every game I can down here. And I'm fine with that. Right. And I was just kind of, once I was able to, you know, kind of stop worrying about what was out, what was outside of my control, just focus on what I could, what I could, you know, take care of that, uh, you know, things started to, to happen for me. Mm-hmm. When you got to those higher levels, did you have any players or, or competing goalies or anything that give you, gave you some uh, support and advice that helped with that as well? I think you just, I mean, you'd watch other people, how they, you know, prepared, whether it was in practice or before a game or, or, or in the game itself. And you just kind of, you know, you take this from that person, another thing from this person, you just take that and kind of implement it into your own approach. But it was nothing, you know, nothing direct. You know, yeah. every everybody was supportive. Like I never had a negative experience or anything like that. But a lot of it was just like, you know, learning from watching people, watching, you know, how they practice, how they prepared, how they played the game. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just taking that and kind of implementing it to what you do. Yeah. Did you have a different outlook on pro sports or the NHL after you were in it as far as a, uh, I feel like there's a, an element of, Hey, it's just business. That's all it is. That's all that matters versus, Hey, it's a game. We got to win and we got to compete. Did you, did you have a different outlook on that scale once you were in it versus once you were out of it? I mean, it's, it's definitely a business. It's a, it's a hundred percent of business. So yeah, I mean that part of it you realize and then, I think the one part that that people don't understand, especially as like a fan or watching something, I mm-hmm. mean, there is so much pressure that people can't even comprehend yeah. what's going through most of the, the athletes. So I think just recently, so I'm a state trooper now, and we were at one of our I'm a dog handler yeah. at uh, the post. So we were at our canine refresher and we had a gentleman who was uh, a master chief in the Navy SEALs. And now mm. he's uh, like a mental coach with uh, a baseball team. But hmm. 
so he is kind of going through what uh you know mentally athletes are going through and and the perception is that the athletes have it figured out right but i mean the one thing he realized when he started working with the athletes is most of them are all on the verge of a mental breakdown yeah from the amount of stress and what's what's going on and you can look at it with you know whatever sport it is i mean you go back to the the olympics with simone biles i Mm -hmm. mean she basically went through exactly what they're talking about where it gets to the point where it's just too much to take and right you know it's either vision right out there where everybody can see what's happening in her situation yeah or it's somebody who's had a ton of success and all of a sudden can't do it anymore right and you see it doesn't matter what the sport is so i think that's the one thing that the fans don't realize is you know it's it's easy to say it's just a game mm-hmm. but i mean when you're on that side of it it's uh, a little bit different yeah was it a relief at all getting away from it and getting away from that stress or did you miss it once you got away obviously you're not necessarily missing the stress but yeah i guess how did that play into it it was a it was probably a bit of both okay i mean it's a it's a great life and obviously you know the players at that level are making good money doing it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean that, and and it's a lot of fun. I mean, it still is a game, and you love the game, and you know, just being with the guys and hanging out in the locker room and stuff like that, you miss. Mm-hmm. But like the the day to day pressure of having the playing games, like probably, I don't, I <laughs> I didn't miss it when mm-hmm. it was that part of it when it was gone. Yeah, but uh, you know and even with kids and youth sports and stuff like that, I think, you know, parents have to take a little bit of a, a step back and, and relax and, and, uh, you know, not put that type of pressure on the kids and let them have fun and do different things. Cause mm-hmm. you know, it's not, uh, if parents think sports is any type of investment they're crazy because it's a terrible investment yeah so if that's your motivating factor then it's going to be a total failure so right Right. Hmm. yeah it's all good stuff i like i I like exploring the just just discussing and exploring the the like the psychology behind it as well just to learn about myself i mean obviously i've never gone anywhere towards that level but i'm talking the obsession side of things um so I can apply or learn about, <clears throat> again, 20 levels beyond what does that entail and what does that look like and how can I learn from that about myself as well. Um, and I don't have a high pressure, uh, I'm not in a high pressure sports. I play pickup basketball every Wednesday or something like that and I have a lot of fun with it, but it's not uh, nothing to that extreme. But yeah, I don't know. I just really enjoy the, between this obsessed podcast, between learning about that side of things, I enjoy the mindsets part of it. Um, have you, have you, have you thought a lot about the mindset and psychology? I guess you have with helping goalies, but is that something you think about on a, uh, on a personal basis? Yeah, I think more and more. I mean, I think you'd probably be better as an athlete if you're able to separate yourself from that. Cause like looking back, like, okay, my, my current profession is a state trooper. Mm -hmm. The stakes are way higher than the job I do now. Yeah. compared to the job I used to do. Right. But the job I used to do gave me way more stress. So it's like 
so the stakes what's the worst case scenario mm-hmm. you know let's say you know whatever sport i guess i mean <laughs> having all the fans critique what you're doing but yeah. the stakes are the stakes are lower than you think they are mm-hmm. when you're in the moment like i probably so like looking back on my nhl career i mean i was fortunate enough to play in the nhl but i was mostly unsuccessful mm-hmm. as an nhl goalie right and there's things i would have done differently and you know i didn't uh I definitely didn't play my best hockey at that level. Mm-hmm. I think you know I let the the pressure get to me yeah. to some extent where I where I didn't perform and you know looking back on it, you know I can accept that at this point in my life, but I think if I would have had if I wouldn't have gotten consumed by that pressure, I would have been better off. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that's success and confidence where if you're able to get in that situation you're and you're able to have some success right at the beginning you know that's going to build confidence that's going to help you manage the pressure that you're feeling Mm -hmm. so i mean some of it's out of your control some of it isn't and you know i tell some of the the college goalies you know i think you know if you know big games coming up or whatever you know there's no point in getting overly worked up about you know, the consequences of not having success because that's probably not going to help you perform either. Mm-hmm. And what's the worst thing that can happen? Like, right. let a few goals in, maybe get pulled. Right. Like, so, okay. Should be able to deal with that. Now let's think what we need to do to be successful. Let's mm-hmm. get that thought of out of our mind because the worst case scenario isn't that terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, my current job, worst case scenario is me or somebody else is no longer with us. So, right. I mean, that's a different scenario than uh, than it was as an athlete. So, yeah. it's just managing managing that in order to perform the way you need to perform. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll uh, continue progressing down the coaching path? If you're helping goalies now, do you think you would continue that for a while and then maybe eventually look into head coaching somewhere or something like that? Probably not. I think I'm good where I'm at. I mean, I was an assistant coach for a little bit even before I got into state police, and it's, I don't know, it's a different kind of pressure. I mean, you're, when your success is dictated by the performance of 18-year-old mm-hmm. kids, right. I don't know if that's... Because that's, you lose, like as a goalie, you had a lot of control of the outcome, like if I really wanted to win right. and I played that, if I played my absolute best ever, then we'd probably win. Mm-hmm. But as a coach, you're giving up a lot of control yeah. of what's going on. So right. I think, I mean, the the good and the bad part about being a goalie was you had that type of control. I mean, mm-hmm. that control could be good or it could be bad, but, you know, you if you wanted to win, you'd win. Right. Yeah. And I, you kind of get in this, and that's kind of a mindset thing. Like people look at you like you have two heads when you tell them that, you know, a younger goalie should be aspiring to let zero goals in, in practice and that if they wanted to win bad enough, they'd win. Right. People, people want to argue with you, but right. I mean, that's the kind of, whether it's factually true or not, that's the type of mindset you have to have. Yeah. To be successful. Have you seen that 
mindset naturally come? Like I, I keep going back to the natural versus hard work, whatever else in coaching or in or teammates or whatever else. Have you seen kids or, or, or athletes that have that just on the gate somehow? They just have that next level. I think some of it's internal, but in most cases, there's going to have to be some success along the way mm-hmm. to like reinforce that thought process. Okay. So, I mean, I think, I think it probably nat the natural progression would be a kid who's talented, yeah. who has success while he's younger and is able to gain confidence. And as he gets older, he maintains that confidence and combined with that, he's willing to put in the necessary work. I mean, that's kind of the, the blueprint for success, I think. Cause I mean, I played with a lot of athletes who were probably way more talented than other people who were having way more success. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, the only thing that can come down to is either, you know, mental performance mentally being able to perform at the right time or work ethic yeah yeah did you see that story you can probably tell it to me better than i have but uh, just kind of a feel-good nhl story where the goalie was uh there's a thing where you have like a backup backup goalie and the guy was like the maintenance man or something like that is this there's a there's a couple where the, the emergency backup goalies played yeah yeah. I mean, it's guys that are playing in their local leagues, basically. Somehow they're as emergency backup. Or, I mean, it's probably dramatized. I'm sure they have some experience. But how does that play out where you've got an emergency backup goalie and all of a sudden he's hopping in there and he wins the game? I remember hearing that story recently. Yeah, that's uh... – <laughs> yeah, I think they they changed the rules. Where that's probably not going to happen anymore where they're, they're keeping emergency players okay. on the roster. But, yeah, I mean, those are definitely – feel good stories and i think they were you know guys that maybe played college or yeah. or whatever and yeah it's yeah definitely uh <laughs> just crazy hollywood story yeah no i just remember the one the guy was again uh, something to this effect he was like the the grounds crew or the maintenance man or I something i think it's uh, a zamboni driver zamboni driver yeah. maybe yeah and all of a sudden he's in there and i think he won the game i mean maybe he let in one goal and he they were a one by one or something like that i, I think so but yeah, i think they yeah. won yeah Huh. Um, anything else that you'd want to cover? Anything else you want to chat about? No. Okay. The uh, What about the taxidermy size, size, side of things? Are you booked way out? Or are you looking for more business? Or how are things looking there? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, business, pretty busy. If anybody wants to look me up, I think uh, Face Off Taxidermy. have a Facebook page mm-hmm. where they can get some information and my number's on there. So, yeah, if you're looking to get a deer shoulder mount or i do different types of bear mounts whether that's a shoulder mount a half mount or a full mount and then Mm -hmm. i do do fish which i've been doing for for a long time since i learned in high school so Mm -hmm. and check out the youtube video of you with lone wolf custom gear yeah you can check that out that's on uh lone wolf custom gears youtube page and then uh I think on uh, Instagrams on my real name, Dieter Cocken, and then my Facebook guys at uh, Ranger Matthews, which was basically I had a a Ranger boat and a Matthews bow, and (laughs) 
I just put the two together so I could start a Facebook page and then it kind of spiraled out of control where it's like my alter ego. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, appreciate you hopping on. Thank you. Yeah. Hey guys, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have, and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast where if you listen and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.